I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica. And this is the Always the Critic podcast where a couple friends review the latest movies, except we literally have zero qualifications to do so. Jessica, uh, it's Memorial Day. It's (laughs) Memorial Day weekend, long weekend. How has your weekend been? A lot of eating, a lot of hanging out with family. Um, We went fishing again. (laughs) Um, And yeah, just hanging out with the family, watching movies, and really chill because most of the weekend we were inside on Saturday. We went to the beach, which was so nice to get out and spend some time by the water and explore the beaches around where my parents moved to so yeah pretty chill oh that's pretty nice mm-hmm. uh yeah i most of my weekend um was was indoors although i did get to see you know friends of ours uh daniel romero and his wife uh they came up and uh we did have dinner uh, or late lunch however you want to describe <laughs> it and uh yeah it was great to be out of the house and be around people uh, that yeah, that yeah. felt good, you know, taking all the necessary precautions, of course. And so overall, you know, you know, we're we're marching through and <laughs> it just, you know, one one of these days, one of these days, it'll it'll all be good. But for now, continue to take precautions. So with that being said, Jessica, yeah, what are we, we doing now? We are now on week four of our ATC Presents Hitchcock series. Uh, Last week, we talked about what we dubbed the Grace Kelly era because she did all three of her Hitchcock collabs during that time. We watched four big movies, Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, and To Catch a Thief. We shared more disturbing stories about Hitchcock, more drama, and... This really surprising revelation about Grace Kelly. Um, but now we're ready to finish the decade. Yes. And when we left off, Hitchcock had switched from Warner Brothers to Paramount and kicked off that new studio contract with Rear Window. And that made To Catch a Thief a bit of a flex. Uh, next up was 1955's The Trouble with Harry, starring John Forsyth, Shirley MacLaine, and Edmund Gwynn. Now, this was actually a black comedy. Uh, Hitchcock wanted to see how audiences would react to dark humor and a movie with no big stars in it. Uh, even though we recognize Shirley MacLaine now, at the time, you know, she was mm-hmm. nobody pretty much. Uh, so he wanted to see if it would hinder the narrative flow and the style of the story, because usually having a huge star would do that. The experiment basically failed because it bombed at the box office. Although it did play for a year in England and Italy and played for a year and a half in France, which is a crazy amount of time. Uh, Just thinking about that makes me think of how Titanic was in theaters for almost a year, which is (laughs) so crazy. Uh, Shirley MacLaine, speaking of her, also won a Golden Globe for her performance, which is uh, pretty crazy. Hitchcock 
Network's next foray was into the world of television, aiming for a wider audience. Alfred Hitchcock Presents was a 30-minute long anthology show, bookended by an intro and outro narrated by the man himself. The IMDb synopsis reads, A series of unrelated short stories covering elements of crime, horror, drama, and comedy about people of different backgrounds committing murders, suicides, thefts, and other sorts of crime caused by certain motivations, perceived or not. The show ran from 1955 to 1962, and then the show was extended to an hour-long program and renamed the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, which ran from 62 to 65. His unique TV presence for the better part of a decade made him the world's best-known director and even more of a household name. Now, I have to pause and say I'm a huge fan of a competing show, The Twilight Zone. And I thought that this show came after The Twilight Zone chronologically, but I was dead wrong. Twilight Zone aired from 1959 to 1964, a total of five years and 156 episodes. To compare, Alfred Hitchcock Presents was on TV six years earlier and ran for a total of seven years and 268 episodes. And if you tag on the Alfred Hitchcock hour, the number turns into 10 years and a further 93 episodes, beating Twilight Zone by five years and 205 episodes. That's some crazy math right there. So why do you think, uh, this is just a quick little question, why do you think Twilight Zone is the one that gets remembered most often by people when when conversations come up? I think that... Because Twilight Zone was delving into the super supernatural and things that can't be explained. And Hitchcock's mm. was very much grounded in reality with real crimes and murder and kind of commonplace things that people would encounter in their, in their everyday headlines. And so he would kind of go after the more, I don't want to say, usual because i think all these things he counted on them being unusual but it wasn't this whole like it just happens in the twilight zone it's another dimension these people cross over and it's inexplicable you know it wasn't any of that there was definitely a sense of realism to it gotcha i i figured it's that much it's people's curiosity in the unknown that most likely triggered that now he still was busy producing his films. Hitchcock, he didn't get to write anything, and he only directed close to 20 episodes that aired under Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But he approved the scripts and directors, the people who came in, as well as played host to the show that bore his name and his style. The opening and closing monologues were famously amusing, usually poking fun at the sponsors and the commercials, but the jokes didn't really go over so well in the European markets, so Hitchcock actually recorded two openings and two closings. The American version usually had all the jokes about the sponsors, and the European version would have jokes about Americans and not the sponsors. <laughs> uh, now, for the mo- for the most of the third season... Hitchcock actually even recorded the intros and outros in French and German since he spoke both of those languages fluently. Mm-hmm. 
Hitch actually drew the silhouette of himself in the opening credits. And if you remember from week one, Hitchcock started out designing the title cards for silent movies. So this wasn't his first walk in the park. The sponsors of the show, apparently they had a big say in the show itself, insisting that all the bad guys in the show get their comeuppance. So in every episode, if it wasn't actually shown, Hitchcock's closing monologue had to tell the audience that justice was served. Yeah, that seems like a bit of a neutering on the part of sponsorships. Yeah, I mean, he had some fun with it, but of it was, you know, it's a bit of a downer to not just like leave it as it was the mystery exactly. of like what happened to this person, what happened to the criminal. That would suck. Now, switching gears and going back into his film career, next up is The Man Who Knew Too Much from 1956. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because we actually talked about this movie in week one. And we mentioned this in week one. Hitchcock remade his own movie. How often <laughs> do you see that <laughs> a director going back? So the 1956 yeah. version has the same title and the same general plot as the 1934 movie, which we happen to watch. And if you want to listen to us, go back to the week one episode of Hitchcock. Now, the big budget remake, it stars James Stewart and Doris Day. So some big name players here this time around. And yep. the letterbox synopsis reads as follows. A couple vacationing in Morocco with their young son accidentally stumble upon an assassination plot. When the child is kidnapped to ensure their silence, they have to take matters into their own hands to save him. Now, like we said in week one, Hitchcock toyed with the idea of remaking the 1934 movie in 1941, but he resurrected the idea to fulfill a contractual demand from Paramount Pictures. Mm -hmm. Now, so we watched the movie. We watched the remake. Uh, yes. What, what did you think? Of the remake. So, I think the the simplest way I can say this is that it is a step above the original movie, the original mm. 1934 version, but it still yeah. falls to the same trappings of the first one. Really? And I, I think it does um, because of the fact that there's a, there's a bit of a pacing issue, you know, in the middle and then... Um, turning it into a quasi musical, almost at a it certain. Wasn't, it wasn't a musical. I'm it just, just saying it had an that. Anthem. Yes, it had an it, anthem, but then you yeah. have Doris Day just basically start performing in the third act, um, mm. just because you could use Doris Day in that way. Um, so it kind of left me like, okay, this is a better version, and you know, better effects, but a better production, everything. Mm. But it still left me the same way I felt with the 1934 version. Uh, just a okay. little disappointed. What about you, Jessica? How'd you feel? I thought it was definitely better. I thought it was smoother. I felt that it was so long. I thought this movie yeah. was extremely long. Um, I think that Hitchcock was kind of upset, maybe. You kind of felt that he was upset with how the orchestration aspect of the movie wasn't like foreshadowed in any way in the original and so he kind of goes overboard with kind of foreshadowing the importance of the musical orchestration like he intros the movie with the freaking london symphony orchestra playing during the intro credits and like the slow zoom into the symbols yeah and then they crash out at the end 
And there's the whole, like, card that says a single crash of symbols and how it rocked the family, the rocked the lives of an American family. Like, ugh, it wasn't it, very subtle at no, all. No, it wasn't. Um, um, yeah, so that was a little bit disappointing to see him so, like, into his own device and, like, check off symbols and, you know, that sort of thing. Another thing that this movie has the same trappings as the first one is that, yes, we do know that there's going to be an assassination plot, but we don't know why. Like, it, mm. the movie doesn't really care to explain, I like, this one here's gave the reason. it way more of a reason because you have this rival diplomat from the same country who wants the prime minister out of the way. I don't think it's necessarily, like... A make or break kind of thing in the original right. movie it was because you were like what the hell it was a cult no backing from some more important person from a country or you know yeah embassy at all it wasn't that in depth so when they changed the locations when they left the church and there was no like sad shootout from the church i was like whoa where are we going this is all brand new so Oh, yeah, that was another difference. That was a huge difference. I mean, they changed the kid from a little girl to a little boy. They changed where they were. They were, like, in Switzerland. They were vacationing in Switzerland in the 1934 version, and now they're in Morocco, really a lot more exotic than just, like, a ski lodge in Switzerland. So he definitely wanted to increase the scale of it, and you felt that definitely. Um we got more of that deep focus shot that he likes to do. Um, door State opens the door to their hotel room, and you can see from the front door all the way to the balcony in the back of the room. Yeah. And it's all in focus. Like, that's very much a Hitchcock thing. Um, I, I think I was a little bit annoyed with, like, the gender politics going on in this movie because the character Joe... Which is Doris Day's character. She gave up her successful singing career for his medical career. And then she suggests very fairly that they could move to New York as a family for the best of both worlds. He can obviously practice medicine in New York and she can be on Broadway. And he's like, oh, it'd be hard for my patients to relocate. Like, right. A product asshole. of the time. <laughs> A product of the yeah. time. Can't really. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's viewing yeah. it through our lens. I thought that the comedy wasn't as good in this one. No. There was no, some really good comedy in the 1934 version. And then this one, you kind of dropped the ball on it, trying to go for that serious, you know, movie thriller. And yeah. the only funny scene I thought was the taxidermy scene. <laughs> Right. Where, like, Jimmy Stewart goes to Ambrose Chapel, which is a taxidermist, and he starts, like, fighting all the taxidermists because <laughs> they're trying to detain him. Yeah, exactly. And, like, they're simultaneously trying to, like, keep him there for the police to arrive. And then they're, like, trying to save all the animal skins and stuff like that. And, like, <laughs> taking, like, the fish out because they're taxiderming a fish. It's like. It's a very weird, like, no music, no nothing. It's just, like, a raw sequence, and you're like, I, (laughs) this is kind of funny. Um, I 
didn't I didn't like that they had no funny sidekick. Like Joe took a big, you know, part in the whole capturing of the bad guy and getting their son back, which is good. We just we just didn't have like more comedy. Like it was just like yeah. Because Doris Day was playing it so seriously. I mean, she had a, she did great. Like I thought her performance was really good. Yeah. I wasn't I wasn't thrilled with Jimmy Stewart. No, per neither se, was I. But you, something I thought that, that Doris I've, Day was really committed. <laughs> right. I will say this about Jimmy Stewart. I've I found that the more I watch and the more I am expecting funny from him, I don't know if there's just some prejudice that I have on him there. That mm. he's just like this tall, lanky, like figure. Like he could mm-hmm. use that for physical comedy, and also he has like this dry wit about him. Yeah. Um, but when when the movies are very serious, I just like sit there and think, I don't know if I buy this guy as like mm-hmm. a serious, like dramatic role leading man. He is yeah. like I feel he's more of a joke type of guy, not necessarily a jokester. Or anything like that, but just the guy who yeah, he's is a got little some more dry funny. humor to him, and he didn't have a lot of that dry humor. He just stood out like a sore thumb, and I don't think his character was very likable. No, not really. You know, like he's sitting in the Marrakesh like restaurant, and he's not really like assimilating like they're like oh this is how you eat this is what they're gonna serve you like he's like oh what is this bread like oh like it was like. I don't know. I don't know if it was just because we're so culturally sensitive now that it didn't like hit right, and maybe that's supposed to be funny, but it just didn't seem well, like yeah. a very likable guy. That well, that's something that's always been played, and it's up until recently that you, that you see more movies that um, like Fish Out of Water, where it's the American that is overseas. And, you know, mm-hmm. oh, how wacky and funny is this culture that you have to do mm-hmm. it like this? You know, it, it was always played that way up until recently. Like in the last decade, it kind of died down just because yeah. of the fact that, you know, we as a society have become more like, why are you making fun of that person's culture just because it's different? You know? Yeah. Um, so little things like that. Uh, so overall, I I found myself wanting more from this, expecting more from this. I thought it, it was, yeah, it was and just feeling polished. like it didn't deliver. Yeah, I can agree with that. I enjoyed parts of it, but it wasn't like a full cohesive, like, wow, this movie is like amazing. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well said. Yeah. Now, uh, let's go through our survey. Mm-hmm. So, is there a murder... Yes, there is. (laughs) Yes, there is. Attempted attempted murder of the diplomat, and then Mr. Drayton falls down the stairs and shoots himself. Also, the hired sniper falls to his death at Royal Albert Hall. That's a body count of two. Uh, No, there's a third one that you're leaving out. It's the uh, Frenchman at the beginning who is stabbed in the back and tells Jimmy Stewart. So, yes, the dead spy. So, that's three. That okay. is, three. is there, yeah, is there a blonde protagonist? Yep, Doris Day is blonde. Yep. Is there a character on the run? Not really. No, I mean, maybe like, I wouldn't say it's a chase scene really, but no. like they're, they're closing in on that, on the couple, you know, where they are with the child, but there's not really like they're on the run. 
you know? Yeah. I think they tried to put a chase scene in here or insert some suspense with Jimmy Stewart walking down the street, that like empty street. And he hears the echo of his own footsteps. And then he stops walking and he hears footsteps and he's like, Oh shit, someone's after me. (laughs) So like they try, I mean, that was the cool part because it was very, it was just audio focused where you're like, Oh my God, I can't see the threat but I hear the threat and it's coming and it ended up being nothing. It was like a red herring, but it was in that direction of a chase. Um, yes. Were there any foreboding shadows? Nah, I don't think uh, so. This movie didn't really have anything going for that in that sense. Yeah. Uh, now ominous staircases. Um, I don't know if I would call this an ominous staircase or if it's just, Here's a staircase and a lot of shit goes down on it. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, it's it's an ornate red carpeted staircase at the embassy. And mm-hmm. uh, Stuart and Hank have to walk down slowly at gunpoint. And that's where Stuart pushes Mr. Drayton down the stairs and he yeah. kills himself accidentally. Mm-hmm. Is there a train? No. Does a character whistle? I know. No, surprisingly, because they're traveling all over. They're taking a bus. They're taking a plane. No, no train, though. No train. Yeah. Does a character whistle? Yes. Yes. Mrs. Drayton tells Hank to whistle que sera, sera, as loud as he can. Uh, was there at least one handwritten note? Yes. Jimmy Stewart's character wrote down what the dying spy said, and he uh, gives it to his wife to read. And we see it as an audience. <laughs> yes. Did we see a newspaper headline? Not no. this time around. Yeah. Gripping climax, possibly at an iconic landmark. Yes, we get a climax at the Royal Albert Hall, just like the original 1934 movie. Yeah, so not too much different there. Decided to use the same location to, Mm -hmm. you know, finish that climax. Now, we talked before about how Hitchcock tends to run late and run over budget on his movies. Well, this movie was no exception. Uh, This movie wrapped production 37 days behind schedule. 37. (laughs) And the movie went well over its original budget, costing $1.8 million, which is about $17.5 million by today's $2020. Now, this did not include Jimmy Stewart's, Doris Day's, or Hitchcock's salaries. That's not even including that. So one thing that aggravated Hitchcock and the reason why it went over schedule so often is because he had to start shooting before the script was finished. So another movie that does that actually that I remembered right now is is Gladiator. Ah, Gladiator started and they were just like, let's kind of wing it. And they didn't have like the full (laughs) script. So Miracle, that movie kind of like ran its course and swept up at the Oscars. Okay. So we talked about the script. John Michael Hayes wrote the screenplay. We haven't discussed him much, uh, but you'll recognize his work already since he penned rear window to catch a thief and the trouble with Harry, which we didn't watch at all. (laughs) Hayes was hired for the man who knew too much on the condition that he wouldn't watch the 1934 original or read the old script. He was given all the plot details from Hitchcock himself, and he was given a treatment written by Angus McPhail. This is when we get into some cheese made. Hitchcock submitted both Hayes and McPhail's names for credit on the screenplay, and this pissed off Hayes. Obviously, like, why should McPhail get 
a writing credit when Hayes did the entirety of the script. Anyway, Hayes took it up with the Writers Guild of America, who agreed with him, judging Hayes to be the sole author. The relationship between Hayes and Hitchcock soon fell apart, and they never worked together again. Ah, that's a, that's a theme that's going to be coming up later on when we speak yep. about a certain someone. Now, for the role of famous Broadway star Josephine McKenna, there were many possible candidates. Kim Novak, we'll get to her later, Jane mm-hmm. Russell... Ava Gardner and Grace Kelly, among many mm-hmm. others, were considered for the part. But Alfred Hitchcock requested the blonde Doris Day for the role because he liked her performance in 1951's Storm Warning. Doris Day, for her part, wasn't sure Hitchcock liked her performance since he seemed to care more about the technical aspects of the shoot, the camera setups, the lighting, etc. She finally confronted him about it and Hitchcock answered her saying, My dear Miss Day, if you weren't giving me what I wanted, then I would have to direct you. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Clear words there. Now, I have no idea that I had no idea, actually, that Doris Day was such a huge animal rights activist. Uh, she even created the nonprofit Doris Day Animal Foundation in 1978. So on the shoot in Marrakesh, when she saw how the camels, goats, sheep, horses, dogs, and animal extras were treated, she was appalled. She refused to shoot anything until the production company properly f- fed and cared for the animals on set. So the crew had to set up a feeding station every day before Doris Day was content and would go back to work. So, sticking yeah. for your values. Mm-hmm. The man who knew too much was Hitchcock's second time working with composer Bernard Herrmann, who first worked with Hitchcock on The Trouble with Harry. Bernard Herrmann is actually in the movie conducting the orchestra during the Albert Hall sequence, and his name is on the ad poster as Doris Day exits her taxi. He was allowed to compose something brand new for the all-important orchestral piece, but he liked composer Arthur Benjamin's cantata Storm Clouds from the original 1934 movie, that he only expanded the orchestration and did not much else. Herman would score our next couple of movies, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and later, Psycho, which we'll cover in the next episode. Herman also worked on Citizen Kane back in 1941, and my personal favorite, we talked about it just now, he scored The Twilight Zone, including the iconic theme song. And what an iconic theme it was. Now, speaking of the climax, uh, we're talking about the man who knew too much in the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, speaking of that climax, the entire sequence was 12 minutes long. There's no dialogue at all. Initially, the script called for James Stewart to deliver this page-long speech to explain why they had to stop the concert. Hitchcock called that off really quick, saying to James Stewart, You're talking so much, I'm unable to enjoy the London Symphony. Just wave your arms a lot and run up the stairs. That's a quote, a direct quote from Hitchcock himself. (laughs) It just reminds me of that huge spat that Hitchcock had with screenwriter Raymond Chandler, who wrote Strangers on a Train, which we hit on on the last episode. Hitchcock wasn't truly a words man, if you think (laughs) about it. So we mentioned Doris Day and the musical aspect of this movie. Let's talk about... The anthem, que sera, sera, translating to what will be, will be. The Man Who Knew Too Much won just one Oscar for Best Original Song, and that was for, que sera, sera, Doris Day, 
refused to record it for mass release. She considered it a forgettable children's song, direct quote. Ironically, it was wildly popular, climbing high on the charts and became the biggest hit of her career and her signature song. She sang it in a couple other movies and it was even the theme song for her TV series, The Doris Day Show. Doris Day never warmed to the song, even telling NPR, the first time somebody told me it was going to be in the movie, I thought, why? I didn't think it was a good song. <laughs> and and there rests my case for what I was saying earlier about just throwing it in in the third act for no reason. Uh, imagine a song that you don't like being your main hit. That's got to suck for you, man. That really does. Yeah. Now, besides the Oscar, the movie has the honor of being spoofed by Bill Murray, your yeah. favorite, Jessica. Uh, <laughs> now, Murray starred in 1997's The Man Who Knew Too Little, in which a man gets mistaken for a spy and has to stop an international assassination attempt, which sounds a little bit by North by Northwest meets The Man Who Knew Too Much. Uh, the next movie is The Wrong Man from 1956, Starring Henry Fonda and Vera Miles, who we'll later see in Psycho. Uh, now, as the name suggests, Fonda gets wrongfully accused of a crime. Uniquely, the director cameo in this movie isn't visual, it's audible. Hitchcock narrates the prologue, and it's the only time he ever speaks in any of his movies. Now, we didn't watch this movie, but I did like this fun fact. Uh, during the scenes at the country hotel... It was so cold outside that Hitchcock stayed in his limo and then decided to move the production back to Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> that is like so Hitchcock that he's just like, nah, bro, let's just take this back west. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> okay, we're moving on to Vertigo from 1958. Loads of people list this movie as Hitchcock's great masterpiece, a wonderful, great film. But it was not so popular when it first came out. It stars Jimmy Stewart once again and Kim Novak. And for those counting, that's a 25-year age difference between the lead actors. The letterbox synopsis reads... And a retired San Francisco detective suffering from acrophobia investigates the strange activities of an old friend's wife, all the while becoming dangerously obsessed with her. Okay, we watched this movie. Yes. Uh, Rico, what did you think of Vertigo? I think uh, there's a lot to like about Vertigo. Really? I think that, yes, there is a lot to like about it. I think that... <laughs> It's a wonderful use of color, especially for its time period. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I, I love that. Um, I think that this is where, and we'll talk about it later, we see new techniques being used, like the dolly shot uh, mm. that a lot of people are familiar with. You, like, they know it when they see it. They don't really yeah. recognize when you explain it to them. Uh, but, you know, there's some technical aspects that are great. Uh, overall, though, I... I'm not as big a fan of Vertigo as a lot of people are. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that sequence where Jimmy Stewart is having that crazy dream and it's in color and he's falling into mm -hmm. the into the cemetery pit, you know, and the colors are changing all around him. I think it's a very interesting and very cool sequence to look at and to experience. Uh, One hundred percent. Overall, though, like I do not find that compelling like 
chasing a woman around to see her what she's doing all the time yeah you know mm. I, I don't find that compelling and again uh here comes the jimmy stewart part i just don't buy him that much as a you know a serious dramatic actor so when the serious dramatic stuff happens <laughs> i just find myself like eh, this doesn't really work man this isn't working oh man so, so okay. for me vertigo is a good movie but i just i don't find it as one of his best Okay, yeah, I agree completely because I came into Vertigo thinking it was going to be like top tier and then I left thinking, what the hell did I just watch? Because I didn't feel like it was necessarily the masterful plot that everyone was like, oh, Vertigo. Like, I didn't see it at all. I, I think that, again, there's really nice, innovative techniques that were used in this movie really bold use of color which is great um i love the opening titles i loved the music the the score in this music in this movie is amazing it reminded me a lot of the music from the illusionist for some reason that other movie um i just don't think this movie has anything at all to do with love i think when characters say they love each other i'm like bullshit like there's no possible way that you love each other there's just no way i think this movie has everything to do with voyeurism with lust with obsession with male fantasy and of course identity because at the end of the day yeah. there's a huge identity crisis at the middle in the middle of this movie um i just don't think that it was a great plot a great script like all the pieces that hitchcock puts in here like the production of it is cool but not that this was like mind-blowing plot where i'm like oh my god this changed my life like no i was actually quite annoyed with the plot and how it played out and character motivations uh, it, it just didn't seem to add up to me it wasn't very convincing and that's a problem that hitchcock has like character motivations is not his main concern at all he's no. way more concerned with you know How's the lighting the set design the care the the costuming these other elements that are his trademarks and not necessarily how it pieces together it's not a character story i think i think it's problematic more yeah than you know genius i i agree yeah. with that uh just because of the fact that especially in the second half after uh again if you're listening now obviously you're listening for spoilers but uh especially when uh kim novak's character um dies i put that mm -hmm. in quotation falls off of the church steeple in, halfway through the movie mm -hmm. and then we are introduced to judy and yeah. again judy is just her in a different hair color it's it's a doppelganger and it's a doppelganger and the way that jimmy stewart's character is obsessed with her and the way he's like just changing everything about her mm -hmm. I, I guess not only just fulfill his need of being around her and the guilt that he has for letting that happen to her, but also because he has this obsessive quality of thinking that this is her, this is, um, you yeah, know, he wants he, to bring her back in whatever yeah. way he can. 
Right. And if it means like changing everything about this girl to match Madeline, then so be it. Like he totally doesn't give a shit about Judy. He's only interested in her in so much as she can provide him with what he lost. So it's like, it's very problematic and it's sure it's interesting. But again, like the movie takes a weird left turn when as soon as Madeline dies and then he's got like a year to just sit and stew about it. And then he stumbles across Judy. It's like, it's, it's bizarre. It's so bizarre. It really is. And yeah, I will praise this movie for uh, quite a few things though, just to, just to be on the positive side here. Um, I love the use of color. I love certain techniques. Like one of the techniques that really caught my eye that I really enjoyed was when Judy uh, does her hair up to look exactly like Madeline and comes mm. out of the bathroom. And it's almost like she looks like a ghost yes. for like a for a brief moment. And then yeah. she starts walking towards Jimmy Stewart. I, I appreciated mm-hmm. that. Uh, again, yeah. the technology of the dolly shot from overhead stretching out what – he's looking down at i thought it was a yeah. really cool effect again mm-hmm. the colors are well done like uh, a shot that i loved is when judy sits down in front of the curtain and you have that green sign behind the curtain mm. and you see that silhouette with the green it's a yeah. wonderful shot so yeah yeah so there's a lot judy's, to praise there is like judy's wardrobe she's constantly wearing green she comes up, uh, for, at first she sees her in this gorgeous green gown and it's set off so nicely against this really deep red wallpaper in the restaurant. And I mean, she has a green car, green gown, green sweater on Stuart, green pillows on his couch. Like every time he's kind of thinking about her in contact with her, there's this like green motif going on. And, um, it just gives it this like ghostly glow and this kind of weird coincidental feeling to it. You mentioned the epic dream sequence that reminded me a lot of Spellbound, um, yes. where they tried to do that dream sequence with the dolly uh, designs and everything. It just they tried a lot of things. He tried a lot of things that kind of he almost could, he couldn't take credit for the Spellbound thing at all. Um, but he tried in this one to to get that credit, to get that notoriety. Um, I just think that he's he's got a lot of like the production down, and it's not it's it's just not there. The plot is not there. Like I'd mentioned, the identity crisis of like Judy's often shown by mirrors with a reflection clearly visible. This is like a dead giveaway that there's an identity crisis here. And so if I didn't think that, you know, the man who knew too much with the orchestral piece and the symbols was subtle, like this, the mirrors thing is not subtle at all either. Um, I see what he's going for, but it's just, I think it's rather a pretentious movie. I agree. I okay. agree. There's there's a lot of pretension in there. Now, you know. I think we've said our piece on Vertigo. So let's go <laughs> ahead I don't and let's like move the ending. <laughs> no, neither do I. And oh, I hate that ending. It's so sudden too. Like it's like it's so abrupt. She, yeah, she falls off and then duh, 
at the end. It's like, really? Yeah. That that's how yeah. you're gonna end this movie. Wow. No, okay, it, yeah. So, it felt rude. Okay, question. Yes, here. it does. <laughs> All right, start us off. Now, is there a murder? No. So we don't see someone actually killing someone, but we have three different people fall to their deaths in this movie. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, high body count. Okay, is there a blonde protagonist? Yes, of course. Kim Novak is blonde for half the movie. And then also there's a weird best friend, Midge, who's also blonde. They do nothing at all with her character. And like just they just unre- forget about her. I, I wanna I wanna say it's like unrequited love towards Yeah, but like they don't even like why even have her in right. there at all? Like it just there's nothing it, I, for her. Yeah, exactly. Now, is there a character on the run? No, not throughout the movie, but at the very beginning of the movie to set up his acrophobia. There is a chase scene, and that's where we get, you know, the yeah. beginning of that sense. Fear of heights. Um, any foreboding shadows? Not really. Just silhouettes, I think. Any yeah. ominous staircases? Uh, the staircase that leads to the top of the church steeple is a pretty ominous staircase um is there a train no No. does a character whistle no was there at least one handwritten note yes judy writes a handwritten letter explaining everything before ripping it up just like um suspicion did we see a newspaper headline no was there a gripping climax possibly at an iconic landmark no iconic landmark, but it was definitely gripping nonetheless. And besides that, like there was the climax of her trying to kill herself, like jumping into the bay. Yeah. And that was next to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. So that is definitely a major iconic landmark that um, is there. So, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. So I do want to touch on this quote from alfred hitchcock he said reality is something that none of us can stand at any time and i think that this movie is a huge like plays right into that quote because jamie stewart's character cannot stand the reality the first the reality that madeline killed herself and second the reality that he was duped by this doppelganger and there was this whole massive cover-up. He played witness to a suicide that was actually a murder. And it was like, he just couldn't handle it at all. And the, the ending kind of played into that whole thing where he can't accept reality. He has to relive the past to get anywhere. It, it, It was bizarre. But that quote really exemplifies this plot (laughs) yes it does now uh the movie itself it's based on a french novel that's set in paris now hitchcock he changed the setting to san francisco he thought it would be more interesting to play off of a city full of hills and the character's acrophobia uh whether that works or not i don't know about that Mm. now hitchcock also changed the ending in the book, Stewart's character kills Judy as he rages against the deception that he brought upon him. Now, this is very nearly done at the end of the movie as he momentarily begins to strangle her. Yes. Um, yeah, so. Mm-hmm. Now, Hitchcock wanted Vera Miles from The Wrong Man to play Madeline slash Judy. During pre-production, he had some doubts that she could even play the part, but the decision was fortunately made for him. Vera Miles became pregnant and therefore couldn't do the picture. So Kim Novak got the part. 
on loan from Columbia Pictures. The studio was receiving $250,000 to loan her out, but they were only paying Novak $1,000 to $50 a week. So refusing to show up to work one day, Novak went on strike for more money, and it worked. She got a raise. Exactly. That's how you play the game. Now, (laughs) Novak seemed to have questions about her character's motivation, a known problem area for Hitchcock like we were mentioning before. Now, and he he basically said and told to Novak, let's not probe too deeply into these matters, Kim. It's only a movie. Direct quote from Hitchcock. Now, for her part, Novak liked working with Hitchcock. She told the Telegraph, I didn't find him controlling whatsoever. I found him a joy. Later, she said, he didn't make me feel less than. He never said, you're not doing it right. What I would do after a take is look in Jimmy Stewart's eyes. I used Jimmy to give me what I needed to keep going and to know what I was when I was on the right path with it. So Hitchcock wouldn't say anything about my work in the movie, but on the other hand, he wouldn't complain either. Now, I noticed that Kimmy wasn't wearing a bra in the latter (laughs) half of the movie. (laughs) Um, And I thought that was really unusual. Well, I looked it up, and that was absolutely true. Uh, It's a rare thing to see under the old motion picture production code. Kim Novak said she didn't wear a bra when appearing as Judy. It was totally intentional. She said she was going braless to help her because it helped her feel uh, more comfortable as Judy, whereas Madeline's costumes were super stiff and restrictive. Novak particularly didn't like the gray suit she wore as Madeline fighting the costume choice until realizing it would help her acting since Judy is uncomfortably playing someone else. Now, here's some fun facts and production notes for Vertigo. When Scotty is following Madeline all over town, the driving route is geographically correct, which is something I truly appreciate because nothing upsets me more than watching a movie specifically in the New York City area, and people are showing up all over town regardless of travel time or general accuracy, um, like, for example, in John Wick, they're at the Lincoln Center, and then in the very next moment, they're down 11 miles away at the, <laughs> at the you know, downtown by the towers where they used to be. Now, uh, so it's nice that if someone ever wanted to, you know, drive the exact route that Scotty is doing with Madeline, they can actually do it in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Hitchcock reportedly spent an entire week filming the scene where Madeline stares at the portrait of her ancestor in the museum just to get the lighting right. This strikes me as something true, considering everything we know about the manic perfectionist that is Hitchcock. The opening sequence, which we mentioned before, um, was designed by Saul Bass in a cool bit of experimental cinema. Saul Bass was an avant-garde graphic designer who not only worked on movie posters and title credits, but also designed the logos for AT&T, Kleenex, and the Girl Scouts. (laughs) Bass based the Vertigo title sequence on Lisa Jew Waves. I can only find one source for how it was done since it obviously wasn't hand-drawn. John Whitney, a pioneer in computer animation, was hired to help out, and an 850-pound World War II targeting computer was used 
It rotated endlessly in sync with the swinging of a pendulum, which created the spiral drawings. drawings. And there you have it, 1950s CG. Bass would work with Hitchcock again on the movie poster and title sequences for North by Northwest and Psycho. Coming really soon on our show. Now, there was more innovation in cinema. The famous vertigo shot or dolly zoom that I was mentioning earlier was also invented for this movie. The shot involves zooming in while the camera is pulling away, or vice versa. So the in-camera effect was an idea that Hitchcock had back when he was doing Rebecca, but he couldn't figure out how to do it. But now the technology was on his side, allowing second unit cameraman Ermin Roberts to create the now infamous camera technique. So that's right, it wasn't technically Hitchcock who came up with it. And I think the best example of it that I think most people would know is in the movie Jaws. Yes. Yes. So you have (laughs) uh, Brody and the camera just comes in on him, but it's also expanding at the same time Mm -hmm. to really focus on in on his face. So so that is the famous dolly shot that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was Hitchcock who toyed with the idea of necrophilia in the movie. Yes, you heard that right, necrophilia. <laughs> in a series of 1962 interviews, he described the movie like so. To put it plainly, the man wants to go to bed with a woman who is dead. I indulge in a form of necrophilia. End quote. Uh, which is driven home by the fact that Stuart Scotty coerces Judy to dress up as the dead Madeline. Scotty isn't fully attracted to Judy until she completely matches Madeline, which is gross. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the big twist in the movie is told through a very essential flashback. That's really the only way the audience n- clearly knows about the deception and early on, too. Hitchcock wanted to remove the sequence for fear of the audience checking out and getting bored since the twist is revealed early. After two screenings, one that had the flashback and one without it, the flashback was kept. The results were undeniable. With the flashback, critics thought it was his best movie. Without it, the critics hated the movie. Well, that didn't stop the movie from being a box office dud upon its release and poorly reviewed by U.S. critics. It wasn't nominated for any of the big awards at the Oscars, instead only getting nominated for Best Art Direction and Best Sound. Hitchcock, get this, Hitchcock blamed Jimmy Stewart for the movie's failure, saying he looked too old to bring out audiences like he did when he was a younger man and so hitch uh, and so stewart fell out of favor with hitchcock they never worked together again Hmm. now Mm -hmm. we have come to our last movie of the episode and of the decade of the 1950s and that is north by northwest from 1959 hitchcock returned to his own genre the romantic thriller after the failure of vertigo hitchcock said he wanted to do Something fun, lighthearted, and generally free of the symbolism permeating his other movies. End quote. Now, North by Northwest stars Cary Grant, once again, he's worked with them quite a few times, as a New York advertising man, Roger Thornhill, who is mistaken for a spy, triggering a deadly cross-country chase. Not bad for a dude who wanted to give up and retire early from acting before being lured back by Hitchcock's To Catch a Thief. Now, 
I don't think we mentioned it in the last episode, but Cary Grant was scared off by the popular method actors of the day like Marlon Brando. He didn't think he could keep up and that audiences wouldn't care to see him anymore. Well, obviously he was wrong. Yeah, so I think that's hilarious. But let's talk about North by Northwest. We watched this movie as well. Rico, uh, what did you think of North by Northwest? I enjoyed this movie so much. Oh my God, yeah. Um, I think that it's something that I have found myself when it comes to uh, Hitchcock, it seems like. I, I enjoy when the movies are a little more straightforward and not mm. trying to dance in symbolism. Mm. Um, I feel they work better than, you know, some of his, you know, works where he's like trying to say something behind the movie. Uh, mm. So, like, To Catch a Thief is just a fun romp. Um, mm. North by Northwest, again, another fun romp where, you know, it's it's a fun cat and mouse game. It's a chase. It's, you yeah. know, you have a leading man who is fun to be around. Like, he's fun mm-hmm. to watch on screen. And, yeah. and I really enjoy this movie. I think that uh, I find it hilarious how the movie starts in New York but somehow ends in South Dakota. Uh, it just like works its way down <laughs> in places you really want to go to, which is hilarious. <laughs> but again, it, it does, you know, end up at an iconic landmark. We'll mention that. Um, mm-hmm. I do enjoy the uh, banter, the back and forth with Ava Marie Saint, who is the oh lead lady in this movie. Yes. Uh, their back and forth is very good. I, I really enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. We have some repeat uh, people in this movie besides Cary Grant. We have uh, the leader of the FBI crew. He was also in Spellbound and he was in uh, Strangers on a Train. Yeah. So, again, another person. It's kind of like the Michael Caine part of a movie. <laughs> yes. uh, like oh with my Nolan. God, that's a perfect so way to say that. That's exactly yeah. this guy. This guy is the Michael Caine from Christopher Nolan. So, um, so overall, I thought it was a fun movie, a very enjoyable movie. Tad bit long, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But overall, enjoyable. Yeah, I agree. I had a lot of fun with North by Northwest. Um, I enjoyed Cary Grant a lot. I thought that he was extremely charming. It was kind of a return to form for him. Um, he was pitch perfect in this role, just super witty. Um, I liked him way better in this than in Suspicion. Um, still, I felt like there was a lot of unanswered questions as to what exactly the crime syndicate was doing. There was something about a statue filled with microfilm. Yeah. And why they thought Cary Grant was the spy. Like, it just, like, what didn't add up. Like, how did they even think, like, that guy in the middle of, like, this restaurant? So, I thought the ending was great. And I didn't quite get the final shot, which we'll cover. We'll talk, we'll talk about it. But, yeah, I thought the... Especially the train sequence where he's ta- he's sitting with Ava. It reminded me a lot of that James Bond movie where he's sitting with Ava Green. Oh, uh, Casino Royale. Tra- Casino Royale. It reminded me of Casino Royale. That kind of like uh, dynamic between them. Yes. Was like that same 
kind of like sexually charged, but yes. you know, it, it was good. It was really good. Uh, I like the line, uh, not that I mind a good abduction every now and then, but I have tickets to the theater this evening. <laughs> like that's like, uh, it had a lot more humor to it. And I think yes. that these romantic thrillers are, he's kind of just perfected it. Like he's really, Hitchcock's so good at it. And he knows when to hit the gas in the comedy and when to like hit the brakes on some stuff. So it was good. It was really good. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention is um, we've mentioned in other episodes how certain actors from that time period remind us of an actor or actress from now. And Cary Grant kind of has, or maybe it's the other way around, but uh, if a lot of similarities with someone like George Clooney. Yes. Someone, someone who. Yes. Yeah. George like, Clooney is the Cary Grant of today. Exactly. Like 100%. That yeah. middle age, good looking guy who is the leading man, but can throw off some good funny. Like he's witty, mm-hmm. like some some very good humor. But also you can see him doing some action here and there. So th- I, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. I was like, huh, this this is basically George yeah. Clooney's lane now. Yes, uh, so. for sure. Oh my god. Speaking not speaking of George Clooney, but um speaking of like funny parts and like that auctioneer sequence where he like yes. tries to get out of the whole like getting killed thing by making a scene at the auction. And this lady says, you're no fake. You're a genuine idiot. And he goes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like he made a scene and it totally reminded me of the 39 steps where, you know, that protagonist makes this scene at the uh, political rally. And it kind of has the same effect where it's like really funny and off the wall. And it just kind of, they flex like these two guys, these two actors, are flexing in this scene like they're just reveling in like this attention and it totally worked i thought it worked really well yes it Um, did yeah yeah um did you have anything else to add i i was pretty taken aback by eve kendall that character uh throwing herself at grant but it's it's explained later so yes it's explained later why she does it so um mm-hmm. oh let me ask you this question before we get to the questionnaire how how mm-hmm. early in the movie did you figure out that she was the spy immediately yeah so did i immediately like yeah when she is like paying attention to him and saving his ass i was like she's she's the the she's, spy the, she's the, the spy that they're looking for there's no question yeah 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 mm-hmm. it was it, it was too easy to figure that out so right Right. Now let's move on to the Hitchcock questionnaire. The movie. Is there a murder in the movie? Yes, we actually see one. <laughs> and it's uh, the UN ambassador that uh, Cary Grant's character is talking to gets murdered right there in front of him. And they think he did it because he's holding the knife. <laughs> Why he yeah. would grab the knife out of the guy's back, I don't know. Yeah, no. Is there a blonde protagonist? Absolutely. Ava Marie Saint is blonde. Fun fact, she says she's 26 in the movie. She's actually 34 when filming. Hmm. Interesting. Nice. Yeah. Is there a character on the run? Yeah, Cary yes. Grant is being chased throughout the entire movie. Entire movie. Yeah. Any foreboding shadows? Not really. No. Um, any ominous staircases? Not really. 
Is there a train? Yes. yes. Uh, yes they take do. the train to Twice. Chicago. Twice. Does a character whistle? Yes. Grant whistles singing in the rain while pretending to shower. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, was there at least one handwritten note? Yes. Written by Ava Marie Saint. Um, and Grant figures out where she's going to figures go. out where she's going to go by the imprint left behind on the notepad and then grant writes there onto you on the inside of his matchbox yes uh, did we see a newspaper headline yes there are multiple ones even his <laughs> his shot with him it, with the knife in his hand as well so every <laughs> newspaper in america pretty much has it and then finally is there a gripping climax with possibly at an iconic location yes there is and it is at mount rushmore of all places of all places of all places of all places wow. what a what a place to have your final point I know. like Actually, i can't imagine like, a movie doing that now no it's such a flex and i think that hitchcock also wanted to have Cary grant kind of slide down lincoln's nose and then have a sneezing <laughs> fit inside of his nose and like the park authorities were like absolutely not like you cannot do that that's just like so disrespectful to the monument and to the figures and so i think somebody put it to hitchcock this way because he was still gunning for it he was like i'm gonna make it happen i have to make it happen and somebody said to hitchcock what if it was cary grant's nose and then lincoln fell inside his nose and was having a sneezing fit and he was like you know what you're right we can't do that like that's not acceptable <laughs> so he dropped no. it uh, finally. oh yeah he so, had to drop it yeah for sure mm-hmm. now we can thank composer Bernard Herman for this movie at all because he introduced Hitchcock to screenwriter Ernest Lehman. Uh, they were initially work, uh, working on a movie adaptation of a novel, but then soon switched gears to explore an idea Hitchcock had. A story of a man mistaken for a spy and a chase across Mount Rushmore. The studio MGM let them continue working on the idea and reassigned the novel adaptation project. Yeah. Also, this is uh, the only movie Hitchcock did for MGM. Side note. Yes. Um, Side note. We already said that Jimmy Stewart and Hitch never worked together again. Well, Hitchcock sort of shot himself in the foot with casting. He talked about the really juicy plot of North by Northwest while filming Vertigo. And poor Jimmy Stewart assumed the part was his. He was really excited to play the part of Thornhill. He was basically begging Hitchcock for it. And Hitchcock had no intention of casting him. He wanted Cary Grant in the role. So instead of outright rejecting Stewart, Hitchcock delayed production until Stewart was contractually committed to a totally different movie and thus couldn't play the role anyway. Hitchcock was then free to give Grant the role. I think it's worth noting that Hitchcock thought Jimmy Stewart was too old. We mentioned that. Cary Grant is four years older than Stewart. I would like to say that Cary Grant does not look four years older than Jimmy Stewart at the time. <laughs> it's so embarrassing. So, so oh, another side note, the studio MGM wanted Gregory Peck in the lead role, but we all know that Hitchcock doesn't like Gregory Peck ever since Spellbound, so that did not fly. Definitely did not. Now, uh, Cary Grant, he made out like a bandit on this movie. 
Uh, <laughs> he got 450,000, which is about 3.9 million in 2020 and a percentage of the profits. So when the production event inevitably went overtime, he got a penalty fee of $5,000 a day, amounting to a further $315,000. That is one very good contract. This reminds me of that quote from Hitchcock where he says, it's only a movie, and after all, we're all grossly overpaid. Oh, yes, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I love um, I love how Cary Grant didn't understand the script. And uh, midway through filming, he told Hitchcock, it's a terrible script. We've already done a third of the picture, and I still can't made head, make head nor tail of it. Hitch wasn't worried at all uh, if Grant was confused all the better because his character had literally no clue what was going on either. That is great. Now, uh, Ava Marie Saint, known for her role in On the Waterfront, played Eve Kendall. The Oscar winner had an interesting time dealing with her costuming in North by Northwest. Apparently, Hitchcock was so dissatisfied with the costumes designed for her that he personally picked out all of her clothes from Bergdorf Goodman. Another example. Goodman. Oh, man, I can't see that either. Bergdorf Goodman. Yes, Bergdorf Goodman. Another example, pretty much, of Hitchcock controlling every aspect of his films. Uh, We have seen this multiple times. He does this to his women. Yes. But Hitch had to give up on a saucy line because of the censors. In post-production, Ava redubbed her line on the train. It was originally... I never make love on an empty stomach. And the final line ended up being, I never discuss love on an empty stomach. Hitch, however, seemed to revel in the final scene of the movie where she and Grant are on the train headed home. The train enters a tunnel, which is 100% a sexual innuendo. Hitchcock thought it was such a clever, naughty triumph, and screenwriter Lehman can't take any credit for it since his script simply says uh, something like, the train heads off into the distance. So that was uh, all Hitchcock's doing. Yes, Hitchcock, known for really trying to get away with stuff, liking to catch a thief's. When Cary Grant and <laughs> and Grace yeah. Kelly start kissing and then there's fireworks in the sky. Oh, Gee, yeah. I wonder what they did. All right. Now, we've been talking on and off about the various homosexual characters and references in Hitchcock's films, which are usually very intentional and precise because of censorship rules and the such, pretty much. Well, actor Martin Landau, who played Leonard, the sidekick henchman to Van Damme, has stated many times that he intentionally played the character as gay and in love with Van Damme. He said in an interview, I chose to play Leonard as a homosexual very subtly because he wanted to get rid of Ava Marie Saint with such a vengeance. Everyone told me not to do that because it was my first big movie and people would think I was gay. I'm an actor. I said it wasn't going to be my last movie and it certainly wasn't. I've never played a character like that since. I also felt it was something people would know or not know. Landau also commented that Hitchcock and screenwriter Lehman were supportive of his choice. And Lehman even added that controversial line in the script, call it my woman's intuition. No matter how subtle, the production code found the effeminacy of Landau's Leonard a problem. 
Okay, let's talk about the famous scene of Cary Grant being run down by the crop duster plane. It was obviously filmed separately. Grant was in the studio running and diving into a fake ditch, and the plane footage was captured near Bakersfield, California, not the middle of the United States. Um, The shot with the plane crashing into the fuel truck and exploding was actually done using models very very convincingly, I think. Yes, very well done, I think, with mm-hmm. those practical effects. Now, the house that's near Mount Rushmore wasn't real either. Hitchcock asked the set designers to create a Frank Lloyd Wright-inspired house. And the set was built in Culver City, California at MGM Studios. There's a nice bit of timing that Hitchcock does here, too. When Van Damme says the plane should touch down in 10 minutes, the sequence lasts exactly 10 minutes in real time until the plane touches down. Yep. North by Northwest was a commercial success, a nice rebound from Vertigo, and it was nominated for three Oscars, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Set Direction, and Best Film Editing. More than a few people have remarked how closely the movie resembles later James Bond movies, with all its cool elements, dashing hero and suave villain, which I literally compared one scene to uh, Casino Royale. Um, The crop duster scene even inspired the helicopter chase from, from Russia with love in 1963. And with that, that is a wrap for week four. Oof. Now, next episode, we are going to cover the 1960s and the 1970s Hitchcock with movies like Psycho, The Birds, and Marnie. So we're coming up on some of our favorite movies and the ones that people are more likely to have seen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Still having fun. Still having fun. (laughs) And I believe that is our last episode Mm -hmm. on our Hitchcock series. So... Next week, the finale of ATC yes. Presents Hitchcock. Now, week five. If, week five. <laughs> if this is your first time listening, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And if you like us, go ahead and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That goes a very long way for us. Don't forget to check us out on social media to stay up to date on our latest episodes and reviews. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Always Critic Pod. Well, that is our show. I'm Rico. And I'm Jessica. And this has been the Always the Critic Podcast. Always the Critic Podcast.